Amen. Amen. We're still in our series that I've entitled Spirit and Power. Spirit and Power. And it came from a place where I myself personally, and I'm sure every one of us, would love to experience in some area of our lives more power. Power over our anger, power over our worry or depression, power over our fear, power over our discontent, wherever that area is for you. And I find myself as a Christian trafficking in that far too much, far, far more than I would like to admit. And so we see in the Scriptures in Ephesians, it tells us that we have power, and that he equates the power to resurrection power. And then he gives us the conduit in Ephesians chapter 3 is the Spirit will give us that power to live in this freedom that we ultimately can have and gain in Jesus when he rose. And so the question now becomes for us is how do we get more of the Spirit? If the Spirit is a conduit for power, then how can we live in the flow of the Spirit so we can experience more freedom and victory in light of the areas where we find ourselves challenged? And last week or a couple weeks ago, I preached on the law of sowing and reaping. What does it mean to sow? It means basically to engage in consistent practices that will eventually bring about a particular outcome. You can ultimately in anything reach automaticity. If you're constantly, constantly trying to learn how to ride a bike, eventually you will ride it and not even have to think about it. Well, the same goes for your soul either for good or for ill. If you're constantly consuming certain things, they will form and shape you into that thing where you will automatically burst into anger. You will automatically burst into worry. You will automatically burst into fear. You will automatically burst into sexual lust because you've practiced or sowed that thing into your soul to where it just becomes automatic and you don't have to think about it. And then you're frustrated because you're asking yourself, why is it that I can't stop? Well, the other side to that is the same thing. And we talked about the fact that if we want to move into power, we have to sow to the Spirit. And what does that mean? That means consistently engaging in practices that invite the Holy Spirit into those places so that we can actually flourish and walk out and live out the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, so on and so forth. So if you want to go back and listen to those messages, you can. And I lastly left with you with a question, are you willing to sow in the places where you're not experiencing power. Again, we take the Shazam approach, where we just keep praying and praying, God change this in me, God change this in me, God change this in me, and then we're not changing, and then we get frustrated at God saying, God, I've been praying about this for five years, and I'm still not different. But what the Scriptures are telling us is that we have a part to play in it. It's the, it's the part of sowing. And so the question is, if you want to experience power, you got to actually consistently engage in the activities that will give you more of the power of the Holy Spirit. So this morning, what I want to talk about is, what is the sin beneath the sin that produces so much flesh in our lives? There is a sin beneath the sin that challenges our areas of flesh that come out. And then secondarily, what is the spiritual practice the sowing practice that will invite the Spirit's power into those places. We're going to talk about a particular practice today. And we find ourselves in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve were in the vein of experience, the very Sabbath of God. 
This is where we find Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. In day 7, God declared, it's good. That means all that must be, has been, and is now for me to experience and for everyone under my rule to experience rest. It's all good. And it is from this vantage point that we are going to see and identify the sin beneath the sin that produces so much flesh in our lives. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field. Everybody say crafty. So what that's already telling us is this animal is being characterized by one that is characteristic of deception. We see already now, at the very beginning of the story, a deception is coming. And it begins to unfold when we see in verse 1, the serpent says to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Here's where we begin to see the manifestation of the age-old sin beneath the sin. What's the deception? Satan in the Sabbath of God, the very contentment of God, everything that they could have is theirs at their disposal. He's attempting to try to supplant in the mind the reality of the Sabbath that they're in. Yo, Eve, I want to get in your mind right now. I want to get into your mind, what? That tree over there. Ah, I want you to focus on that tree over there. The first thing he attempts to do is to redirect her attention. He tries to get her eyes off of all that she does have and focus it on what she does not. And then... The deception gets deeper. Verse 2, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat the fruit of that tree in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. There's the lie. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What's the lie? What's the deception? The tree over there. The one that you don't have. Out of all of the trees that you do, the one that you don't have is the one that's robbing you of true Sabbath. And then the belief in Eve and Adam shifts. Once Satan convinces them of the lie that they need to have the thing that they don't have to have ultimate satisfaction in Sabbath, then they fall into sin. Now, the question is, is what sin do we see here in the text that's beneath the sin? It's the sin of covetousness. 
It's the desire to have what we don't have, believing that if we have that thing that we don't have, then we'll be happy. Why do I call it the sin beneath the sin? Well, the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, we see verse 17. God's tenth commandment to Israel is, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Why do I call it the sin beneath the sin? First, that tenth commandment to not covet is the only commandment that it seems to be focused on the heart rather than actions out of all the other commandments. It's focused on the interior as opposed to the exterior of what you do. Notice that the sin of covetousness in the 10th the commandment, it actually is what causes you to break commandment number eight, commandment number seven, commandment number six, commandment number five, right? If, if you're coveting another man's wife or husband, that's the fuel on the inside that will actually cause you on the outside to step into adultery. It's, 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 it's when you don't have these possessions. Hey, I like your house. I like your house. I like your house. It's the coveting of, of what I don't have and what you have that then will cause me to step into the outward action of stealing because I got to get what you got. You see, if you look at every single one of the other commandments, they are action-oriented overall, and the one that he ends with is the heart because really... It is the fuel for the other commandments or the breaking of them. You see, we see this illustrated in the life of King David, the sin beneath the sin. It says in 2 Samuel 11, 2 through 3, it happened that late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Elaim, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? She doesn't belong to you. She belongs to someone else. You see, David went out on the rooftop and he looked at what he did not what? have. He saw what he did not have, and then his heart attached to the fact that I need that to be satisfied. I need that to find happiness. And the moment he coveted it, the action of what came out of him? Adultery. The action of what came out of him? Murder. See, he broke the commandments because he ultimately fell into the last and final commandment, which is the tenth one. The second thing about coveting in the 10th commandment is it's the sin that declares to the heart that what I have in God is not enough. It's not enough for me to have rest. I need another God to be happy. Now, what's interesting about that is that the 10th commandment, you shall have no, uh, is the same as the first commandment. 
you shall have no other gods before me. Coveting is essentially the same commandment as the first one. So really the Ten Commandments are bracketed by this one concept. If you find all that you need in me, you won't break any of the other ones. Idolatry, commandment number one. Coveting, commandment number ten. And that's why Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is what, everyone? Everybody say idolatry. Idolatry. It's the breaking of the first commandment. And of all the things God could have commanded, covetousness made his top and now that I'm examining it, it makes sense. Covetousness is what ultimately plunged the human race into destruction. You see, we give a lot of attention to the other sins, the nasty nine, the dirty dozen, the, the, the ones that are outward, anger, lying, stealing, sexual sin, and so we know we need to be vigilant against those types of things. But how vigilant are we against the cravings that drive them? You see, Satan loves this. Because if you really think about covetousness, it feels satanic. Because it's so subtle. It's insidious. And we can traffic in wanting to have things that we don't have that other people have and not really feel all that bad about it, right? I mean, I just kind of want what she got and I just don't have it. That's not so bad, is it? Not realizing that the devil is exactly that. He's sinister. He's not going to have you overnight jumping into the nasty nine and the dirty dozen. No. Nah. He's just going to foster just like he did in Eve. Hey, look at that tree that you don't have. The one over there. Until it builds up so much so that the dissatisfaction rises to a peak and then like King David, you fall into the flesh. This is why now I understand in verse 5 of Colossians chapter 3, Paul's like, don't play with covetousness. He said, put it to death. Kill it, murder it, destroy it. I asked you in this series to identify your signature sin. That area that you find in the flesh that you keep falling into that's bringing ruin inside and out of your heart and your soul. Think about it. I want you to name it. I've asked you to name it. Whether it's envy, whether it's discontent, whether it's worry, whether it's fear, whether it's sexual sin, whether it's gluttony, whatever your area is, I want you to pause right now and ask yourself, because nine times out of ten, this is true, what are you coveting underneath it that's fueling it? What do you want that you don't have? Because that's where the battle is. You teenagers, my teens, you can't have that relationship. 
You can't have that, that freedom. Mom and dad always saying no. That is the worst word in all of the world for teenagers. Amen? Don't y'all hate that word? I hated that word as a teenager. Dang, y'all. It's always no. Can't have that phone. How many of you guys want that phone? Oh, yeah. Can't have those friends. Right? Can't do those things. Can't go to those places. Can't watch those shows. Y'all hear me, my teenagers, you with me. You with me. I, I, again, I was there before, not, not so long ago. Right? Stop laughing, man. Not so long ago. Amen. Hey, Grandpa, hey, stop that, stop that. No, I am. I am a grandpa and loving all of it. But if you think about it, my teens, it's what you don't have that then makes you what? Angry at mom and dad, right? That's where it's coming from. That's why you're mad. That's why you try to hide and lie, right? I know I did a lot of lying as a teenager. I do a lot of lying right now as an almost 50-year-old man, right? But you lie because you don't have. What is that thing for you, brothers and sisters, that you don't have? Parents, you don't have margin, amen? Free time. Maybe you don't have a supportive wife. Maybe you don't have more compliant children. What is that thing that you don't have? It's that recognition. The people around you aren't recognizing you for all of the contributions you make to the company, to the individual, to society, to the family. What don't you have? What's that tree that you don't have, that, that success that you've been longing for, that appreciation, that family structure, that, that husband, that wife? You, you just don't have that, that, that better leadership, that, that more submissive or encouraging individual in your life. You don't have, you don't have that, that financial position that you wish that you had. What is the thing that you can't have? If I could have more blank, this kind of a church, this kind of a pastor, this kind of a marital companion, I covet the healing because I've been sick for so long. I covet the gifting because I, had, I wish I had his gifting and, and, and I don't have it. If I could just have that position, if I could have those possessions, if I could have, if I could have, if I could have, if I could have that tree. And the devil's just, he's on you. Hey, just, just look at that tree. Just, just keep looking at that tree. And it is there where you will find your source, I guarantee. It is there where you will find your source of whatever vice is in your life right now. It's why you're angry. It's why you fall into lies. It's why you're feeling discontent. It's why you're envious. It's why you gossip and complain. It's, it's why you run to food, shopping, and substances to nullify. You see, it's the sin beneath the sin. And see, Satan in your life, the world in your life, in your own flesh, wants you to fix your mind on what you don't have so they can break you out of your rest in God. And so we keep sniffing around outside of God to find our rest. That's the lie of the evil one in every single one of our lives. That's the whisper constantly. 
So what is the sin beneath the sin? Covetousness. So now the question is, what is the spiritual practice that nullifies the power of covetousness? Well, how do we start? So we got to start sowing, right? We got to start practicing. What is the spiritual practice that nullifies the power of covetousness in your life so you can rest in the Sabbath that you have in Jesus? In Colossians, he gives us that answer. Chapter 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Everybody say seek. Verse 2, set your minds. Everybody say set. On things that are above. Everybody say above. Not on things that are on the earth. Then look at verse 5. Put to death. Everybody say put to death. Therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, so on and so forth, and he ends with covetousness. What is Paul telling us? Okay? And I actually look at, look at verse 5. Just look at verse 5. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness. Look at verse 8. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Look at verse 9. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self. Those are all the vices, right? Those are all areas I'm sure each one of us in some way find ourselves trafficking in. So what is Paul saying? How do you eliminate verse 5 in your life? How do you eliminate verse 8 in your life? How do you eliminate verse, verse 9 in your life? You set your mind on verses 1 and 2. If you set your mind on verses 1 and 2, then you can do verse 5 and put to death. Notice the correlation of sin in the text and setting the mind. If you set your mind on things of earth, as he says not to do, then you're going to produce verses 5, 8, and 9. But if you set your mind on heaven, then you will get verse 12, put on then as God's chosen, holy, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, all of the life that we want to live in the Spirit. So what spiritual practice nullifies the power of covetousness in our lives? The practice of setting our minds on things above. It's the consistent practice sowing, meditating on what you have in the garden of Jesus. So you can see what you have in the garden of Jesus is of far greater worth than can be gained outside that you don't have, thus demolishing the power of covetousness to move you into the flesh. Can I get an amen? Talk to me. You see, if Adam and Eve, watch this, if Adam and Eve had just paused, sometimes we need to pause, Amen. If they would have just paused and looked at all that they had in God, all that they had in the garden, if they would have set their mind on the fact that they had the very presence of God walking with them in the cool of the day, if they just focused and set their mind on the fact that they didn't have to even work for their provisions, if they just set their mind on the simple fact that they had perfect, powerful bodies that were free from sickness and disease, if they had just set their minds on the fact that they were living out a purpose that was eternal, if they just would have looked around and said, whoa, you tripping devil, 
You got me fixated on this, homie. Look at all of this. See, this is how Satan loses his power in our lives. Really, I've experienced it. My wife was talking about some areas in her life she experienced it. When you start to believe something that is true of you in Jesus at a heart level and the Spirit causes that to land, the devil shuts up. He literally goes away. And I remember my wife telling me, it's as if that thing that just had such a hold on me, it's like gone now. Like, it's, it's crazy, but it's the Jesus in the wilderness situation that happened to my wife. It was like, Satan was like, dang, she finally believes the truth. And what, that was what happened with Jesus. And he was like, man, I'm done with this cat. Because he keeps living in the truth of who he is in God. I can't get him no more. So what did he say? I got to come back for a more opportune time. So then me and the wife was talking, and she was like, it's funny because now it's another thing. See, the devil was like, now I got to go to something else. But at least we know that it is possible by the power of the Holy Spirit that we no longer have to be where we were in God. This is exactly what God said to King David when I was looking at the text with King David. It's a trip. <laughs> King David fell into sin. And obviously, we know the story. The prophet Nathan comes to King David. Look at what God says to David. He coveted, right? He says, I anointed you king over Israel, 2 Samuel 12, 7. And I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms. And I gave you the house of Israel and all of Judah. And if this were too little, I would have added much more. What did God tell David? Dang, man, I just wish you would have looked around. You got fixated on that one thing that you don't have. I gave you all of this, and if that wasn't enough, I still would have given you more. Just like covetousness. The sin beneath the sin. I want to call us to practice the setting of the mind on things above, which I will call the practice within the practice. We've been talking a little bit about spiritual disciplines, and there are many spiritual disciplines. But the reason why I call the discipline of setting the mind on things above as the practice within the practice because I want to encourage you to do this. Whether it's the spiritual discipline of scripture memorization, silence, solitude, fasting, reading the Bible, prayer, study, whatever spiritual discipline it is, the practice in each of those spiritual disciplines ought to be the fight to set your mind on what you have above in every one of them. You see... This is why, and I've told you why I've been on Ephesians chapter 1. Because this is exactly what Paul does in Ephesians chapter 1. The man was behind bars. And we already know, Roman prison ain't like what they got up in here today. Cats be playing Xbox and PS2 and 4s and all this other good stuff up in jail. No, 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 no. Not happening in a Roman prison. And yet in prison... 
He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What is Paul doing there? Setting his mind. He's setting his mind on verse 3. I got every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He's setting his mind on verse 4, that I have been chosen by God. Do we know what? We're talking about God here. We're not talking about just anybody. God chose me. But not only that, he chose me before the foundations of the world, before there was even a molecule in the universe. I was chosen to be holy and blameless. You know what that means? That means God shines his light of kindness and love upon me. I'm holy. I'm blameless. No blemishes. Are you seriously? Do you know who I am? Have you been where I've been? Have you seen me? And yet I still have the smile of God on me. See, he set his mind on verse 5, the fact that God loved him so much that he destined him for adoption. That was his destiny, to be in the very family of the God who owns the the entire universe. He set his mind on verse 7, on the reality that he's free from the bondage of sin, that whatever sin that you find yourself in, inside of Christ, you're free. You're free, redeemed, loved, forgiven. No more guilt, no more shame, walking in total and pure righteousness in Christ Jesus. He set his mind on verse 11, the fact that he has in Christ an inheritance. I don't think y'all hear me. Do you ever think about your inheritance? Do you ever set your mind on your inheritance? Maybe I'll break it down a little bit for you. I did this a few years ago. I'm going to give you a picture, at least from my vantage point, of the inheritance that you have. I call it the setting your mind on the Revelation chapter 21 inheritance. I'm talking about meditating on things above. I'm talking about heaven. Revelation 21 class is in session. The day is coming when Jesus rolls back the ozone like he rolled the stone. Then the new city of heaven will descend from God's throne. This city is huge, 1,500 miles in every direction, the shape of a cube. The city is a volume of about 3,375,000,000 cubic miles, no guessing. 600 stories, the new heavenly city will be enormous is what I'm stressing. Walls of red jasper, the foundation sapphire, agate, emerald. Like the 90s rap group, it's got onyx, carnelian, chrysolite, beryl, and topaz, chrysopaz, jacinth, and amethyst. It has 12 gates, each one a single portal, 1,500 miles long, streets of pure gold, transparent like glass slippers, but don't call me Cinderella. The main streets lined with rows of the trees of life, the same ones in the Garden of Eden 2.0. Take a bite of its fruit and watch your eyes roll back like the food critic on Ratatouille Anton Ego. Imagine heaven's food. Your taste buds will explode with life pouring out of your veins. Mind blown. A new fruit every month. The smells erupt. Food from the finest chefs cooking the finest cuisine from the finest restaurants. I need some help. In heaven, no need for Yelp. Every place has got five stars in that city. Every review, heavenly. Smells so good, you could cry, but you can't because it's heaven. 
Can you see the buildings in the city breathing the very life of God? Streets buzzing with people from every tribe, tongue, nation, bored in heaven. You're going to rule and reign with Christ over the entire universe. Your mind's racing. Imagine the adventures as Christ sends you on a quest to discover a new planet, build a new city, write a new song, learn a new glory for the King of Kings and his story. Can you see the simple fact that you can imagine the concerts in heaven? Sidewalk musicians in heaven will make Michael Jackson sound like Tito Jackson. Jazz that puts Miles and Coltrane to shame. America's Got Talent, please. AGT, don't have to worry about GTA. City Hall will be the main attraction. No government workers. The wisdom of the universe will be at the helm, the triune God of all that's happening. You'll be able to behold the very face of the creator of the universe where God himself is going to bend down and wipe away every tear, every single pain, injustice, dark cloud over your life, and the world it just won't remain. No one of your tears will fall to the ground. He's going to catch everyone. Heaven is insane. You'll have powerful bodies free from disease, death, and God will give you a new name, an eternal purpose, and you will reign, and you will meet the one who made it all happen, the God-man Jesus, who took nine-inch nails in his hands, was beat to shred by the wicked hands a romance and hung on a cross that you might have eternal life in your hands. It's no wonder Jesus said, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust can destroy and where thieves can break in and steal. It's no wonder that Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness because there's more in him than what can be had out there. It's no wonder he said, what profit a man to gain the world and lose his soul. It's no wonder that kingdom of heaven is the treasure hidden in the field because it is far greater worth than anything that we can imagine. Set your mind on that. That's the garden that we have in Jesus. And then in verse 13 of Ephesians 1, he says, set your mind on the fact that you're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Who is the guarantee of the fact of what I just described? And even that we don't think about. The Spirit of God. You have the Spirit of the living God. I said this a few, a few months back. The three-in-one triune God is in you. The God who made the sun blaze and made the seas wave and did it in six days, that spirit is in you. The God who has the sickest alias, I am. The God that has no nemesis in, the genesis limitless with no blemishes. That God is in you. And what is he doing? He's strengthening you to experience the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience. Galatians chapter 5. The Spirit of God right now presently in you is the garrison against the onslaught of the flesh that wants to bring you in ruin. The Spirit in you is 2 Corinthians 3, 17, freedom from condemnation, guilt, and enslavement to the maggot-filled promises of sin. The Spirit of God in you is the one who will ultimately bring life to your mortal body, Romans chapter 8. The Spirit in you is the greatest therapist who will guide you into all truth, John chapter 14. The 
the God that is in you, all the words and all the books and all the libraries and all the world since the beginning of time can't give enough room to describe the reservoir of infinite love, grace, presence, and power that is in your soul. He's not just helping. He's not just counseling. He's not just strengthening. He's not just advocating. He's doing all those things all at once in the lives of the multitude of saints around the world, and he's not even breaking a sweat like I am right now. What spiritual practice nullifies the power of covetousness? Set your mind on things above. It's really hard to be discontent. It's really hard to be angry and irritable and frustrated. It's really hard to be full of anxiety and worry about this or that that you don't have when you have all of this. And this answered the question for me. This is how you put to death the deeds of the flesh, Colossians 3, 5. What does that mean, to put to death the deeds of the flesh? Set your mind. Put to death, verse 5. The way you put to death, verse 5, is verses 1 and 2. So what is the sin? Beneath the sin that produces so much flesh in our lives, it's covetousness. It's the lie that what I have in the garden of Jesus is not enough. It's the lie that the devil told Adam and Eve, and he uses that same tactic every single day in our lives. And what's the spiritual practice that invites the power of the Spirit, the presence of God into that place? Setting your mind on the reality that what you have in the garden of Christ is of far greater worth than what you don't have outside of him. So, as I close, if Adam and Eve had only looked around at what they had, if Adam and Eve had only looked around at what they had and believed that what they had in the garden was of greater worth than what they didn't have, Satan would have lost his voice and influence in their lives. So here's what I want to ask you. What's that tree that Satan has you fixated on in your life? I want you to name it. I want you to identify it. I want you to give it its due attention. And unlike what Adam and Eve did, I want you to For these next moments, I'm going to ask you to pause. And I'm going to ask you to allow for the Holy Spirit to begin to minister to you in that place of all that you do have in Jesus. So I want you to take just a minute 
I want you to identify what is your I gotta have? What is that tree in the garden of your life that God has said, you can't have that? You can't have that at all or you can't have that right now. Because if he wanted you to have it, you'd have it. What is that thing that you, ooh, and the devil keeps telling you, you need that, you need that. And then I want you to just, after a moment, ask the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit of God, will you please help my unbelief? Right now, I can't get myself out of believing that if I have that thing, then I'm going to be satisfied. I just can't get out of that. Help my unbelief. So just take a few moments. Just you before the Lord and invite the Holy Spirit into that place. honest with them. Tell them, God, I want that tree. God, I want that tree so bad. Help my unbelief. is going to be my next encouragement. Again, you know that area of covetousness. If you don't, maybe ask the Holy Spirit to identify it. Maybe you're angry, frustrated, worried, envious, gluttonous, and you're not really sure why, what's driving it. But I'm going to encourage you to do what I suggested a couple weeks ago. I'm going to have two applications here with whatever the area that you just brought or are bringing for the Holy Spirit right now. I want to first encourage you weekly, take aside a Sabbath day and bring that thing before the Lord and intentionally set your mind on all that you have in Jesus. Once a week, Take that tree that you don't have and say, that's the tree that is keeping me frustrated, angry, envious, irritable, tired, discontent, worried, anxious. This is that tree, Lord. And then practice in that moment setting your mind. Set your mind on Ephesians chapter 1. Set your mind on Revelation chapter 21. 
Set your mind on John chapter 14, verse 17. Take what is true of what you have in Christ and begin to rehearse. I know you may not feel it. You don't have, I know you don't feel it. I know you may not feel, oh, this is do do do. I know that. It's okay. Just do it anyway. And watch the Spirit of God do his thing in his timing. The second thing I want to encourage you this week and for the rest of your days, get into the practice of setting your mind. Whenever covetousness comes, you'll feel it. Whenever the what you don't have comes, because you're going to get angry, you're going to get frustrated, you're going to get irritated, you're going to get envious, you're going to want to go shop with money you don't have, you're going to want to open a book and disappear into it, you're going to want to watch cartoons like I do, you, you, you're going to, when you do that, I want you to stop yourself. Stop trying to put a Band-Aid on it. In that moment, stop yourself when you feel the covetousness and get into the practice of setting your mind. When you feel it, okay, I'm going to set my mind. When you feel it, set my mind. And to have some realities that you can quote to yourself. I have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Just say that to yourself. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3. And on Monday at 2 o'clock when it comes, I have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And when it comes on Tuesday at 9 o'clock at night, I have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And when it comes, I got Revelation chapter 21 inheritance. Just, just get into the habit. Hear what I'm talking I'm talking about sowing here, right? I'm talking about sowing. It's not going to change overnight. But if you get into the spirit enable the discipline and practice of set the mind, set the mind, set the mind, one month, two months, three months, one year, two years, you will find yourself at greater rest generally in your life than you could have ever conceived, but you got to put in the effort. Let's pray. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray, God, for those who don't know you right now. God, I pray, Lord, that you grant them the grace to see, God, what they have in you as of the worth that it is for them in Christ. If it's true that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, then we should be celebrating like we won the lottery every day and yet we don't I don't so God help our unbelief please God we're weak please remember we're just dust we're feeble weak minded our hearts are fickle Will you please hold our heart and lead them toward you? In Jesus' name, amen.